Cool. Okay, let's take our seats. And uh, it's Father's Day. <laughs> Father's Day. Being a father is probably one of the most challenging roles I've ever done. <laughs> if I think about anything I've ever been called on to do, being a dad wins hands down as maybe the most difficult task. It didn't start out that way. Like when your kids are so dependent on you that they just look to you for everything and you're in total control, it didn't seem that difficult. Not comparatively to what it became once they became their own little people with their own little minds, their own little wills and decisions that I didn't always think were the best decision for them. Can I get an amen? You're all looking at me like, oh, our family just doesn't operate that way. That is exactly how it is. And I must admit, if I was honest, I've got some regrets. You know, it's funny how you start out in life and, uh, and certainly our married life, etc. You know, we came to Christ a few years before we actually got married and it was like a brand new start and I was just determined to live a life without regrets. And it's amazing how you get a little bit further on in life and I'm only saying a little bit further on for my wife's sake. And you get a little bit further on and, uh, and you can actually have regrets. You, and especially as a dad, you stop and you think, I could have actually done things better. There's some things I might not have said or there's some things I might have said. There's some ways I might not have reacted or I would have reacted differently. Uh, come on, dads, is this, am I speaking to you? And I think all of us can, you know, it's easy in hindsight to look back and go, I could have done it better. Um, and I just thank God that we've, we've got a, a model in Scripture. God, as our Heavenly Father, is an incredible model to shift towards continuously. To me, God is ground of being. He is the centre of all things. And if we can keep coming back to that centre, we can adjust ourselves and we can live out more fully the image that we were created to bear. And, uh, and I love this because our society, I think, it really struggles with the image of fatherhood. It really, really does. And of course, our society at large has had some, you know, some bad experiences of it. But what we've got is a really confused image that's projected, I think, in our society. So we've got days like today, which are highly celebrated and fathers are champion, lift it up, it's Father's Day, happy Father's Day, Dad, all of that stuff. And of course, there's a big commercial wind blowing into that storm as well. And dads are championed and lifted up. And for most of the rest of the year... The, lead, the, the media is littered with, um, you know, with reports of absenteeism or, or you know, just bad behaviour, ab even abuse, etc. And so you've got this crazy range from, we're going to celebrate like anything for one day and the rest of the year. And it's, so I think some dads really feel pressurised by that, feel a bit like, man, I don't want to be lumped in with the, with the big hole. We all recognise we could do better. And the funny thing is, God's image in Jesus' day was very similar to the image of fatherhood in our day. In Jesus' day, we've got to understand the background. Jesus came into a society that had by and large projected man's judgment and violence onto the image of God, had actually presented and created a very distorted image of God and Jesus came and speaks so clearly into that in Luke chapter 15. So we're going to look at a story that's, you know, really well known today. 
uh, in a passage of scripture. And it's the story, and, and often we call it the story of the prodigal son. But when we do, we actually do it in injustice. We only, we only focus on one third of the story, which is, you know, that's, that's fair enough because most of us relate to the prodigal son. Most of us relate to this one character that, that messed up and came back. And, so, and that's good. We're meant to relate to that. But the story's bigger. It's actually the story of a father and two sons. So there's a lot to be learned. And what I want to focus on today, of course, is the father in this. And as we draw some conclusions from that, for me, it's just like a north compass. It's a ground of being that pulls me back to the centre of the person that I can and aspire to be as a father. You ready for it today? So what, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the story, even though we know it well. I'm going to make some observations. Then I'm going to speak to us for a few moments about the father heart of God. Then I'm going to ask us some questions. Cool? And I'm going to keep it moving. So let's start in Luke chapter 15 and uh, verses 11 and 12. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Couple of quick observations. Number one, this is a parable, okay? This is a made-up story, which actually gives it more intent. Jesus is not just reporting on a random act. He's actually been able to craft exactly what he wants us to get about the nature of God. And the first thing I notice is just how generous and releasing this father is. I mean, there is no way in the world asking your dad before time to sell part of his land and give it to you would be an easy no-brainer. Yet Jesus presents it this way. The son comes, knocks on the door. Dad, I want half. Yeah, sure, no worries, mate. Come on, who thinks that would happen in, in the real world? Never. But to me, I think it's absolutely intentional. Because I think Jesus wants us to get a hold of the fact just how generous and releasing God actually is. Remember, he's speaking into a generation that have an image of God as violent and judgmental. And all of a sudden, he's presenting another image of what the kingdom is like. And he's saying, this father is so releasing and so generous. This would have been horrifying to his original audience, but it says something so clear to us. And you know, I'd like to call this like, just so we know, we've all got this inheritance. You might not realise it, but if we call this the first inheritance, we've all got it. You might say, well, no one sold a farm for me, gave me the money to go party on. But just think about it. We've been given this earth, this world to enjoy freely. The sun comes up and it shines on the best of us and the worst of us freely. The rain falls down on the best of us and the worst of us. Freely given. Freely given this breath we breathe. Think about it. God is so generous. He is so releasing that the very breath, someone who criticizes God, ridicules God, expresses unbelief in God, is only using the breath that God was happy to give. 
That's how generous and releasing is. Let's keep going. So just a point for our message a little bit further on. Then we've got verse 13. Now, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went, hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pig food, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him. I love this. I know the scripture doesn't say this, but I always put it this way. The father was waiting at the gate. For him to see him a long way off, he had to be looking out for him. And so I always express it this way. The dad was waiting at the gate, which immediately, I mean, the, the, the first natural conclusion you draw is that the father loved the son very much. And that's really, really true. But remember, Jesus is telling a parable, a made-up story to change people the people of his generation their perception of how God was not necessarily who he was but how he was and interestingly if you go back into the book of Deuteronomy you'll see stuff in their ancient laws so Deuteronomy is the second law or the repetition of the first law that was given to Moses you'll see uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 21 a particular law that speaks right into this And I'm going to paraphrase it. It says something like this. And if you're not shocked by this, you're not reading your Bible. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of this town, of his town. And they shall say to the elders, he's stubborn and he's rebellious and he will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Well, I tell you what, I'd be afraid. I'd be shaking in my boots if I heard a story like that. And we've got to understand, these were tough times in the, in the seasons of man. Really, really tough times. If we're not shocked by that, there's something wrong with us. As a matter of fact, the reason we are so shocked when we read that and think, how could these things be? Come on, mum and dad, can you imagine that? Mum and dad, take the kid, probably a grown man, take him to the elders, they're going to kill him. And then you won't have any more problems with your rebellious child. And no one else will either, because they'll hear of it and go, man, that's tough. But the only reason it's so shocking to us is how far God has redeemed this earth. This is once how the people of God thought, let alone those outside of the revelation of Scripture. This is how they thought. Now that's the backdrop to Jesus saying, the Father's standing at the gate. Why is the Father standing at the gate? Not just because he loves his son, but because he knows that if he doesn't get there to shield him from judgment, his son will be killed anyway. The neighbours will go, this is that bloke. And by running and throwing his arms around him, he was actually signalling to his community 
that this is forgiven and I accept him back. It's exactly what God does with us. Sends a very, very clear message. What is the cross? It's a very, very clear signal that we've been embraced, that we've been welcomed back. No matter what our images of God might be, and I'll deal with some of them as we go through. Um, but what is Jesus is doing, he's defining not only the image of, of God as a father, he's not only redefining it, he's actually redefining parenting at the same time. And not just for dads, but for mums and dads. And then verse 21, it says, The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And I love this. I love this sort of acceptance. Now I know this story is so rich. Honestly, it deserves a six-week series in itself. But I'm just trying to pick out a few big way markers in it. I love the acceptance in this. This sense of just you're back. If you really read into the story, you can see that the son rehearses his lines and doesn't even get to speak them. The father cuts him off. He starts and the father cuts him off halfway. And begins to celebrate and restore him exactly back to his original place in the family and in the community. And I love this. You know, it's interesting. But when I talk to people who either have never really engaged with God or who did at one point and then for whatever reason fell away from that, the general feeling when I talk to them is one of I'm not, I'm not game to come back. God wouldn't want me to come back. You know, last night I was at a, a school reunion, 42 years since I left school and got an apprenticeship and uh, went to the school reunion, second one we've had in 42 years. And uh, it was interesting, but in two different conversations as I got around people in the room, people, you know, came to know what I do now, uh, which, you know, for me at 15 at school, no one would have dreamt I'd be doing this, I can tell you that right now. And... Um, but they felt the need to make excuses. Stuff like, uh, oh, the roof would cave in if I turned up at your church. It's like, I wonder why people think that way. It's why Jesus told this story the way he did. So that we'd know that's not the heart of God. I remember when we were building this building and we were headed towards, you know, finishing the building. We we're going to have an opening service. So I'm getting around the builders, the chippies, etc., And I'm inviting them to come to the opening service. And the common line was, mate, the roof had fallen. And I was able to say, well, didn't you build it well enough? <laughs> not game to come in under your own building? But there is this sense of rejection. And yet what we see in the parable is absolute, unabridged acceptance there's no caveats. There's no provisos. And again, Jesus is making this up. In other words, he's only saying what he really wants to say. He's not repeating a story. He's actually telling us a story exactly the way he wants us to perceive God. You want to know, this, this, this is one of three parables. The lost coin and the, the what's the other one? The sheep, that's right, and the son. <laughs> one in ten, one in two, one in a hundred, whatever. And uh, it's, they're all to make the same point. But you can guarantee Jesus isn't wasting words here. He's saying exactly what he wants us 
to get. And when I think of people that, you know, maybe have either not engaged God through this sense of, well, that God thing's not for me, uh, or, and often it's because people have either been, you know, messed up by other people, or they've, they feel the victim of natural law, someone they know has loved, or has loved, has passed away prematurely, gone through hard times, whatever. There's a lot of things out there that just happen because we live on a planet. God does not have to have anything to do with it. But people get messed up by that. Whenever I see people distancing themselves from God and having this sense of, I don't think God wants anything to do with me. Well, you know, if they've been in church, what it makes me realise, even if they've had a genuine, powerful experience with God at some point, they've never actually heard the gospel. Even if they thought they responded to it, they never actually saw what Jesus was trying to say. This is what your heavenly father is like. Okay, we move on to verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what is going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. I've always found this a remarkable part of this passage and it's a very powerful part. But the thing I want us to notice, just at one point, is that rejection didn't come from God. Rejection didn't come from the father. Rejection came from his peer. It was actually his brother. I mean, think about this. Who doesn't know what a party is? Like, again, if, if I went out past the Richleys place, I went out past the barn, and there was hay bales everywhere and coloured lights and there was a band playing and a big barbecue cooking and people were dancing, obviously line dancing. If they were dancing, <laughs> you wouldn't have to tell me what that was. Do you understand what I mean? I would know what that was. Instinctively, I'd go, oh, they're having a party. This guy had to be told what a party looked like, which is interesting because he's brought his frame of reference to the story. And it's so different from the father's. I heard this quote, well, I actually read this quote in a book just recently, just two weeks ago, a week ago. And it's, it, was, it, it simply said, we don't see the world the way it really is. We see the world the way we are. Yeah. We have these filters of the way we approach things and we see it the way that we see it. And that's what's happening with the older brother. He's not seeing a party. He's seeing his own, you know, his own loss or his own uh, entitlement slipping away. He's not seeing his brother come home. He's seeing a guy who spent time with prostitutes. Interestingly enough, he says that the general story doesn't. Jesus doesn't categorise his sin. 
The brother categorises sin. The church gets in massive trouble when we categorise sin and we try and define sin and try and define things that God doesn't. And so here's the, here's the oldest son and he's really having a conniption over all this. And I mean, if you look out there at the moment, we've got all kinds of stuff, haven't we? In our society at large, and you know, for many of us, we've got our smart technology, we've all got a platform now, and so much of what you see is either negative, or it's critical, or it's fearful. And I think we have to understand, when we look at some of that stuff, it's just like when someone criticises you, that says more about them than it says about you most of the time. And most of what we see projected into the public space says a lot more about the hearts of the people doing it than it does about reality so often. And it's just amazing that this guy's in the middle of a party being thrown. And he even says, I never got to have a party. And it's like, well, here's your opportunity. (laughs) I, I reckon if his approach was different, what do you reckon would have happened if he said, can I invite some of my friends? What do you think the father would have said? He's already given him everything. He would have said, yes. Do you want to borrow a donkey? Go pick him up. (laughs) But he's just seeing something so totally different. And yet Jesus is trying to help us see the heart of the father in the middle of it all. So here's um, here's some observations on the father heart of God. Number one, it was pure. I'm only going to spend a few minutes here and then I'm going to ask some questions. But it was pure. And when I think about it, and certainly comparing myself, when I talk about pure, what I mean is not mixed motive. And, you know, if I have regrets, I'd say one of them is that at times my motives have been mixed. Classic example. When you want your kids to do well, but not so much for them, but for how it makes you look. Because if they don't do well, you don't look good. And we get this mixed motive. But we see the opposite in God the Father. I will shield my children who have messed up from the expectations of others. Just the total opposite. And I look at that, and again, I don't beat myself up about it. I go, wow, that brings me back to true north as a dad. That just brings me back to ground of being and just... Who, whose image I'm created in. He's pure. The second thing I see in it is kind. He's kind. I mean, I love the way Pastor Sue preaches on kindness. She, because she lives it, she does it very well. But if I compared myself, man, I'm, con- I'm tempted to manipulate. Far from kindness. If you do this, I'll do that. If you don't do that, you'll, you'll get this, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> You join the dots. Come on, some of your parents, you're looking at me like, oh, our family doesn't operate that way. <laughs> and I know, look, when they're small, yes, there's got to be strong expectations. When kids are small, you know, you want them to do well and you've got to provide that framework. But what I've learned is they, as they get older, you've got to let them go. Even though you don't want to, and I guess I'm just learning this lesson over and over again, but, but it's sort of crystallised lately for me and it's simply this... It's almost impossible to be their father and a judge. I just can't be both. I've got to decide what I'm going to be when they're old enough to know better. And, and you might go, well, if that's, if that's an image of God, God's a judge. 
Come on, have you been reading your Bibles or not? <laughs> Who believes God's a judge according to Scriptures? Yes. I do. Yes. The problem we've got is which kind of judge? So we've got a whole book in the Bible that teaches us about judges. It's a very violent book. But what we see in it is that judges were people anointed by God to deliver the people from their oppressors. See, we have an image of a judge who's the one who calls the shots. Who's in? Who's out? Who's naughty? Who's nice? Who's good? Who's bad? That's our image of judgment. Scripture's image of judgment is an anointed deliverer. So is God a judge? Yes! Just like the Father. An anointed deliverer waiting at the gate who runs to throw his arms around the wayward one and shield them from the expectations of others. Wow, that's the gospel. And if you, if you struggle with how God accepts you and receives you, as I say again, maybe you've never heard the gospel. Maybe you've heard a lot of things talked about God and Jesus and other things, but maybe you've never actually heard the good news that this is what our Father is like. Jesus didn't come to change our opinion on who he was. He came to refine our understanding of how he was. There's a big difference. And this is how the Father is. And the last one, last thought, got plenty of time. And this one might be, I think, one of the hardest ones for us to get our mind around. And that is that God's happy. I mean, you know, the sun comes back smelling like a pig pen. And even if you're forgiving, and even if you're concerned, would party be the first thing on your mind? Wouldn't bath be the first thing? Or, or tend your wounds? Or... But I think, again, Jesus is so intentional. He goes from outcast to the celebrated, the guest of honour. And it just reflects this heart of God. And I could have said, used more sort of biblical words like joyous or something like that. But actually, I think happy is maybe a word that we just relate to better. That God's not uptight. We are more, like the, prod, the prodigal's older son shows us, we are more uptight with people's issues than what the father is. Yeah. He's just happy you're home. Jesus said it this way. There's more joy in heaven over one who comes back than 99 that got no issues whatsoever. There's more joy over that one. And that's what we see. This is where he teaches it. Ultimately, that's who God is. He's actually happy. He's pure in his motive towards us. He's kind. He's happy. I love it how Paul puts it in the book of Romans. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, it's not about the physical external things at all. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, we've been doing a series on Nehemiah and there's a passage out of Nehemiah that, you know, we sang songs about years ago. Songs are based on it. 
Nehemiah 8.10, the last part of the verse, it says, For the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's funny how we leave the first half out because it's a bit awkward. (laughs) Because if you read the whole story, the people in Nehemiah's day had just discovered that they've been disobeying God for so long, they're all totally messed up. So they're having a massive repentance session. They're crying and they're wailing. You know, and for those of us who are judgmental, we'd look at that and we go, and that's what they should do. But Nehemiah races into the midst of that and goes, stop it all. Today, revival, renewal has come to you. Therefore rejoice, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the middle of the day when you realise you've totally blown it and you're really a miserable wreck, O wretched man that I am, Paul says. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. In the moment you realise that, rejoice! You just came home. And the Father receives you and accepts you. His motive is pure. He is nothing but kind. He is happy to see your face at the gate. And this is the image that Jesus brought to his generation. I think what a shame it would be if 2,000 years later, we still haven't got the memo. Jesus was saying, this is what your heavenly father looks like and this is what the kingdom of God looks like. So can I ask us some questions real quick, just to think about. And this first one, I'd really like us to, maybe if if you're comfortable to, close your eyes and just think about this question as I ask it. What do you feel? Now, often we don't talk about feelings in church. You know, we walk by faith, not by sight or feelings. But I actually want you to feel something today. I think God wants you to feel something. What do you feel when you imagine God to be like the father in the story? Is that the image your imagination projects when you think God? happy, totally accepting, totally forgiving, throw a party for me kind of guy. It's it's such a brilliant image that if we haven't heard the good news, we won't believe it. (laughs) We just won't believe it. No, God's more complicated than that. Well, Jesus had every opportunity in telling a parable like this to tell us exactly how God is. And I suggest that's what he did. Second question, are you grateful that you're living in the first inheritance now? You know, your second inheritance is the kingdom of God and walking with Jesus and the promises of Scripture. But every day we get up and breathe a breath, we can be thankful. You can be in this place. You you might not have any connection to God whatsoever. Or you might not feel that you do. Can I just say, as part of his creation, he has been happy to give you an inheritance, to enjoy and to do with what you will because he's so free and gracious. Even if you choose to destroy it, he would let you do it. But I'd encourage you, don't waste the moment. You might go, well, I've never had anything to do. You know what? He's waiting at the gate. It's okay. It's okay if you haven't. But hey, if you want to, you've got a father that's willing to run and meet you and shield you from the judgments and expectations of others. 
so that you can actually have a party with him. That's the picture Jesus gives us. And then finally, are there any judgments of others you need to walk past so you can enjoy the party right now? You know, I think sometimes even people in church, you know, if you've ever felt like you don't belong here, if you've ever found yourself like with, maybe with your hands in your pockets and like, I feels really awkward in church today, but that person over there looks really holy compared to me. Well, maybe like the, the younger son, the prodigal, maybe you need to walk past the judgments of others and get into the party. Maybe, maybe some of those judgments are even your own. Maybe it's the way that you perceive yourself or the way that you've judged yourself, the way that you talk about yourself in your own head. And those judgments are stopping you coming to the party. Because we're all welcome here. We're all welcome here. No matter where we're at in our journey, the Father doesn't treat it any different. If you're great, you're faithful, you've been around, the Father would say, it's always all been yours. You know, if you're new or you're coming back, well, then the Father would say, let's have a party. I'm going to rejoice. I'm pretty happy to see you at the gate. We'll get you cleaned up later. Let's just party. There's a message right there. So why don't we stand together? Why don't we stand together today? And um, can we just pray together? Let's just join our hearts together one more time today. Jesus, help us to see God the way that He is. The way You've shown us, the way You... You crafted a story to help us engage the reality. Help us to embrace our Heavenly Father for who and how He really is today. And just just while we're meditating on that, if you're here and maybe you'd say, well, Chris, I, I actually aren't journeying with God. Maybe once upon a time you did. For some reason that's lapsed. Or maybe you have never sort of taken that step of faith. Maybe you've really wondered whether it was your place. Maybe you've wondered whether the roof would fall in anyway. But here you are today, it hasn't fallen in yet. And I just want to encourage you, friend, this is your moment. This is your opportunity. Just in this closing minute, God loves you. He's waiting at the gate. And it's simply your choice if you want to receive that. You can do that in the simplest of ways, just right where you stand, opening your heart and in your own heart of hearts, inviting Jesus to be part of your life, part of your journey. And I tell you right now, God wants to celebrate that. That's something worth celebrating. You can do that right now, friend, I encourage you to. Levi's gonna come and let us know some more.